Today, get ready to buckle up because we are about to discuss the greatest movie never made. Yes, it has to be called the greatest movie never made. James Cameron's Spider-Man. You bet the maestro, the director of some of the biggest movies ever made, Mr. Avatar 1, Avatar 2, Titanic, and more importantly for the old fellas like me, the Terminator movies, The Abyss, Aliens, True Lies. He wrote a script and was prepared to direct Spider-Man in the 90s, but it was all tied up in crazy legal mumbo jumbo, but we are going to we're going to talk all about it today. Was Arnold Schwarzenegger going to play Doc Ock? And how do Tom Cruise and Will Smith fit in to this crazy Spider-Man puzzle? I'm going to I'm going to put it all together. We're going to connect all the dots today as we discuss the greatest movie never made, James Cameron's Spider-Man on an all-new Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host Rob Liefeld. I have been making comics for 37 years strong. There, there are a few things on planet Earth or existence itself that I love more than comic books. And we talk about them here on Observations, but we talk about the effect that comic books have had on pop culture at large, how they've expanded way beyond the spinner racks that I was pulling them off of when I was seven years old in, in the forbidden haunts, like the, the liquor store at the, at the, at the corner of Magnolia and Broadway. I, I swear to you, if I could take a time machine, I would go back there all the time. Things you shouldn't say to your family is when you casually look up from whatever you're reading uh, on any given moment and say, man, I, if I could go back to 1976 right now, uh, I would. And, and, and then they say, but, but you'd leave us behind. And I'm like, yep, yep, that, that, that's right. I just want to go back in time. So, uh, you know, Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll be granted that, that uh, wonderful gift at some point and make it back here and tell you about it. But until then, we discuss comic books and pop culture uh, on this show. And I give you my unique perspective from someone who has been collecting comics for uh, 44 years uh, strong. 44 years, just, uh, oh my gosh, 46 years, 46 years of, 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 of consuming these comic books. We got a good one today. We got a good one. I don't know how we haven't gotten to this subject before, but we're going to uh, talk about a piece of comics history that we haven't discussed prior to this. Not, not in the, not in the depth that we've, that we've, uh, we're, we're, that we're going to go at it here today, but a, a note, a, a quick note when I talk about comic book history, because this kind of caused a light bulb in my head to go off. The other day, I'm flipping through one of the social medias, and there's a guy who I don't recognize, who I apparently shared space with in a venue uh, recently uh, selling comic books, and there's a picture of, of a guy and some other guys, none of whom I recognize. Now, 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 let's go back to, I've been making comics for the better part of four decades, and I have been uh, consumed with comics for 46 years. A couple of uh, really generous people that I was able to run into recently mentioned the podcast and said, Hey, we are so thankful that you kept all those interviews and, and that you read from and that you never throw them away. <laughs> of course I laugh and I'm like, yes, I am a comic book hoarder. And uh, again, there are elements of my family that would be like, we wish he would throw those away, but they are of benefit to this specific podcast. And, and, and for that, I'm 
I'm grateful. But again, it, it only underscores how, how much I have been obsessed with the comic book business. But the difference is I made it my profession. Okay. And, and there, there's a difference there. there. There's a difference there. Would you, do you want to hear, um, you know, comic book history? And I'm not just talking about just myself. Do you want to hear comic book history from people who made it or, or, or were participating in it or the people who are just literally rereading it to you from a book that they didn't write now? And and we're going to get to that in just a second before we get to our main topic. I told you, I, I was flipping through the social media and I saw a picture of a guy who I did not recognize. And we were, we had shared a venue and he was with other people who I did not recognize. And they called themselves comic book historians. And I'm going to tell you, you're like, man, the hairs that grow up your ass, right, Liefeld? Uh, but but bottom line, I, I was like, comic book historians, what? And of course, I did a quick, you know, I did a little, little check and saw that they're all roughly 12 to 15 years younger than me. And uh, and, and then, I, you know, I was just, just you know, just comic book historian. That's, that's a, you know, that's a cool moniker. Hey, everybody, I'm a comic book historian. I'm, you know. I am also a getter of the mail. I am a picker upper of the newspaper. I am the eater of cereal. Okay. That, that's, that's just kind of what went, went through my head. Um, cause I'm like, I don't recognize any of you. And of course there are, there are, there are depictions of guys standing in front of green screens, reading from other people's books about comic book history as they inform you of comic book. That, that they are comic book historians. Now I hear you right now. You're like, let's lay off these people. Give them their fun. I want them to have their fun. But I just think, wow, like beware. Here's my thing. If you want to call yourself a comic book historian, more power to you. Okay. More, <laughs> more power to you. But just, I'm here with the beware, beware, caution, caution. Okay. Danger, danger. Because having lived the comic book career that I've lived, and 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 participated in you you guys thousands upon thousands of comic book pages uh that I have been really fortunate enough to to help produce and 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 manufacture and get to you and get into your hands and again this this incredible career that I've that I've enjoyed I've met a lot of wonderful amazing talented people now I've done several podcasts that, that detail with Stan Lee, who has increasingly, and it was inevitable, has become a semi-polarizing figure. And part of that is due to a couple of books released in the last couple of years, four years since he, since he died, the last four or five years, right before, right after, um, you know, when he was ill, facing his final days. I mean, it, it's just been this like, Last five years, you knew there was, they were coming because people were calling saying, will you participate in my book about Stan Lee? And, and I would decline. And, and I'm really proud of many of my fellow uh, comic book professionals who declined because uh, this particular writer came with an agenda. And that agenda was to uh, smash Stan. It's a, it's a hit piece. The book is a hit piece. I'm not going to mention it. I'm not going to mention the author. You guys know I don't believe in giving that kind of bandwidth, but I can I can speak to it in the broader terms and that's what i'm talking about in the broader terms this stanley book is a hit piece and there are books prior to that that were hit pieces written by people who did not make the history they did not make the comics they did not distribute the comics they did not work behind the desk of the people editorializing the comics collating the comics and and yet they write these books 
which gives you their history. Their history. There's history and their history. Okay. And, uh, you know, I mean, honestly, you look at the word history, right? And it's his story. You break it up. It's his story is, is, is that those two words give us, you know, history. No, there's not two S's in history, but you get what I'm saying. What is history? And they always say, well, the winners, the winners get to, get to write history. Not often the, the, the people writing history had nothing to do with the history that was either won or lost. They are an observer, or in this case, they want to be known as comic book historians who I'm like, I've never seen any of you. And, you know, maybe you're teaching a class at the community college on comic book history. And I respect that because any knowledge that we can be sharing, which makes people smarter in a world where people say crazy, irresponsible things, you know, you've listened to my podcast many times. One of the triggers for me is when people say, oh, you know, Marvel went bankrupt in 1996 because, you know, the comic books weren't selling eh, wrong. No, there is nothing true in that sentence. Marvel's comic book sales were great. And they had nothing to do with the larger company going bankrupt. I've discussed this many times. I won't go further than that here. You guys know that I just think it's so, you know, it's lazy. It, 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 nobody put any research into that whatsoever. They just wanted to say it. They wanted to say it and they didn't want anything to dispute their notion because in today's world, there are many different ways to track down that, that information. But whether it was the Stanley hit piece or a, History of Marvel Comics book that was written not too long ago. That one in particular and the Stanley one, they're both written by observers who've collected some interviews, but only with people who either agree to talk to them or they want to speak to. So now you're getting a skewed version of history. And I am telling you, beware, 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 beware. Caution, 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 caution. This, this Marvel history book, when I when it came out and I'd heard rumblings about it, I was at Barnes and Noble and I pulled it off the shelf and I flipped through it and I was just aghast at the completely historically inaccurate. And when I say inaccurate, it's because I lived it. When, if you're going to talk about the late 80s through the 90s, well, now you're talking about a decade of time, maybe 12 or 13 years beyond. I mean, I mean, the the, the 1987 is when I'm hired. Okay, and from from then on, it, it's, it's history. I've walked, I've talked. I, I know so many of, of the people who have made comics. And to go beyond that, remember, little Robbie Liefeld was going to every single comic book store appearance and comic book convention that was in Orange County, Southern California, that he could possibly attend. I'd stand alongside the people who were making the X-Men and the Teen Titans and Spider-Man and Superman and the big crossover books. Um, and I'd pick their brains talk to them. It wasn't like signings now. A comic book store signing that was a big signing would have 10 or 15 people in 1983. George Perez would fly out uh, from, from doing his big crossover crisis on, on Infinite Earths, and he'd have 25 people at the store in Fountain Valley. The guys who were doing the big Marvel crossover, Secret Wars, John Beatty and Mike Zek, Mike Zek who drew, drew it, and John Beatty who inked it, they would come to a weekend comic book fair at the same location in Fountain Valley. And they'd have 30 to 40 people. It's not like the thousands that we see now, the umpteen thousands that we see now. It was smaller affairs. You could sit, you could talk, you could interact, you could pick brains. They would share stories. And as I've been, 
you know, sharing with you guys the interviews uh, of the of the people who make the comics and make the history have diminished. I've done, you guys. Let me let me let me give you firsthand when. And I'll, and I'll go with the biggest possible scenario. Let's say Deadpool 2 is coming out. Let's say a $175 million budgeted movie is coming out with a couple hundred million dollars in marketing. And I'm going to do some interviews. They've set up interviews with me. I'm thinking these interviews are going to be interesting in the way that the interviews that I grew up in the 80s and 90s were. And I'm going to be given my space to talk and talk and talk like some of the interviews that I'm reading from you here on Observations with Todd McFarlane, with Barry Windsor-Smith, with John Byrne, Frank Miller. Well, those don't exist anymore. They go, that's it. I'm like, you asked me two questions. Yeah, that's all we need. That's all we need, Uh, you know. And then they talk about attention spans and clicks and links and nobody wants long form anything anymore. They don't want long form anything. If I get a good interview on 60 Minutes a couple weeks back, random insert here they did a thing on the difference between wolves and dogs and honestly it was so great it took up about 30 minutes two segments on 60 minutes that means they were really devoted to giving you a lot of interviews a lot of data a lot of points of view on this comparison between dogs and wolves and i was so just i loved it i could have watched more of it but it wasn't just a five minute soundbite selling of somebody's movie or TV project that you get on the morning shows, the late shows. It was more in-depth. And and for me, I like more in-depth and in-depth interviews for comic book people don't really exist anymore because that's okay. I'm I'm good. I'm I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm like, well, I'll get more questions this time because the, 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 the subject matter is so much bigger, a movie with a giant budget and nope, two, three questions. We're, We're good. We don't need anything more than that. And you're like, but I, I could have talked for hours. And, and you're listening now going, Rob, you, you do talk for hours. Yes, this has, been, this has been my outlet. Because again, you can't really get out there and talk anymore. So the amount of information that you're getting is less than you've ever been given. But in those magazines from the 70s, from the 80s, they gave long 40, 50 page. The Howard Chaikin episode that I did introducing you to his work on American Flag. That, so, so much of that podcast is cold from a pair of interviews that he gave and they were long form interviews and so you could really get into the mind and the creative process and maybe the reason Barry Windsor Smith got you know stepped on his tongue and and took shots at the entire industry is maybe that interview went on too long maybe maybe if it was cut short we wouldn't have gotten to all that those juicy tidbits so the subjects of today are not being heard in the same way that the old, that the subjects of old and I am I have been a subject of old and a subject of today as have many of my peers but like I said I've walked alongside the greats who've made the comics since I was a kid because I attended those signings and those those sessions and I learned and I went to the Q&As and I went to the interviews I would sit in an hour long panel with Chris Claremont while he talked in depth some of that stuff just doesn't exist anymore my point being I've been around the comics I've walked through the comics I don't call myself a comic book historian, but there are others who do. And then they write pieces that are irresponsible in this one Marvel book when it wrote about the 90s. And here's my point. Twitter had just come of age and I said, how can you write an entire book and you didn't talk to one guy that you're talking about? He speaks of Todd McFarlane. He speaks of myself. He speaks of Jim Lee. He speaks of Mark Silvestri. He speaks of all of the big movers and shakers of the 90s at Marvel, the million-dollar sellers, the Image Comics founders. He didn't speak to one of us. And when I called him out publicly, 
the author came back and said, well, I could talk to you for the soft cover. No, don't. I talked to all of my buddies. Did you talk to this guy? Did you talk to this guy? They're like, no, I was never contacted. I was never contacted. Think about that. You're getting content with opinions. And there's a couple of really salty guys who were salty when we started Image Comics. I'm giving you this as an example. Who said some really terse and ugly things to us then, to our face, to our face. Someone I worked with, someone you know, said, you guys are going to fail. This is not going to succeed. Oh boy, this is going to be a disaster. Totally uh, part of the negative skewed view and the suppression and working behind the scenes to kind of badmouth everything that we were doing at the time. Specifically said, you're going to fail. Wouldn't you know it? One of the voices that is continuing to shape that time in this book. But by all means, don't talk to the guys making the books and the guys who, you know, generated these kind of sales and this kind of interest. And really, when you talk to the guys about, when you talk about my fellow peers in Image Comics, I am proud to tell you that, yes, we changed, A, changed comic books forever, made made meaningful changes in terms of paper, color, distribution, manufacturing of comics. We affected the mechanics of comic books and we affected sales uh on on the on the basis of our talent and our good names we accomplished a lot i'm proud to stand shoulder to shoulder with these guys i've i've, I've shared this with you many many times don't don't think that if you were going to hang out with members of the surviving members or back in the day the members of the rolling stones or the beatles and and, and don't think they're not going to tell you how excited what they were able to achieve they could be humble by it they can be astonished by it, but they would be they would tell you that they are excited and proud. And that's what I'm trying to tell you. And I'm telling you that comic book historians, in air quotes, comic book historians have written books without speaking to subjects that they're talking to you about. And admit, no, I did not call Jim Lee. I did not call you. I did not call Todd McFarlane. I just what they're really saying is I just wanted this negative version of you, this this horrible version of you that I myself want. I'm the author of this comic book history book and I want to slam you and I don't want to give you a voice. I don't want to put a microphone in your face that would give a counterpoint to what I'm saying. So, caution. Caution. Buyer beware. Uh, When people who are comic book historians rear their heads, be careful. Did they make history? Did they participate in history? So now they're an observer. I, I, I am a supporter of the observer if the observe, observer puts the work in and does all of the angles. But so many of these guys just want to give you their viewpoint. There's another, I'll close it. There's another, there was a book that came out right at the end of the 90s and it talked about the decades. And these two guys literally slammed the hell again out of the 90s. And we were still in the 90s. One of them, uh, is is doing time. He was convicted of some heinous crimes. Some, uh, you know, I just a, a complete criminal now behind bars and uh, convicted of terrible, terrible crimes. And when I met him face to face in the early nineties, it was like we had landed his rocket. He didn't get a chance to take off himself. He and and some of the people that he worked with, and so he resented us. And so then he rent the, wrote this awful. I mean, it's like. This was the worst time in comics. The 90s were terrible. That kind of stuff that I'm telling you. And, uh, and the cover was by a, the, the cover of the decades book, which talks about the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that's all there was because it came out in like 1999. This guy 
slam the 90s the hardest because that's where his, you know, plane landed and he didn't really get to get off the runway. So he spewed hate and he spewed uh, all this uh, just negative energy in, in this book and having met him and seeing the contempt that he would have for us through when he would look at us and be in the same room with us, obviously comic book functions, parties, and then to know, oh, you're in jail for a long time now because you were a creepy criminal. So buyer beware, buyer beware, caution, caution, comic book historians. They, uh, they, 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 they vet that, vet that stuff as hard as you can. Try and as much as you can to listen to the subjects themselves. Find footage or people who knew, worked with, participated in creating books with, with, with the subjects. Jack Kirby, for instance, the king of comics, the greatest comic book illustrator, storyteller, artist of all time. Okay, Jack Kirby, all, all, all the crowns on his head. He was called King Kirby for a reason. A couple of the intros to his recent books are written by people who stood next to him for years, sat next to him in his, in his house and, and helped make comics. His anchors, Mike Royer, uh, a guy who, who, who was personally sought after Jack. He talks about the call from Jack. I want you to work alongside me. Mike Royer inked, you know, hundreds upon hundreds, perhaps thousands of Jack Kirby pages in, in, in a, at a time when I thought Jack was at his prime. And he can tell you about Jack Kirby better than anybody. I journeyed to see him at a local show not too long ago, a couple of years back, right before the pandemic, because he was there, introduced myself. What a, what a classy man. What a generous and classy man. Just wanted to pick his brain, talk to him, talk to him about Inc. and Jack Kirby. I knew Jack Kirby. Remember, I'm fortunate enough to have known both guys that created Captain America. Joe Simon, Jack Kirby. Hung out with both of them, had meals, went to their houses, you know, looked in their Looked at, looked in their shelves, bought artwork, watched television, talked about world events. Okay, find people who have been with the people who make the comics and hear their stories, and and that's the point that I am trying to make when I'm talking about comic historians. Couple couple of flashing light bulbs <laughs> went off in my head, and 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 I and I just had to get that off my chest. Comic historians, there are the people who participate. And then there are the observers. And just be careful when it comes to the observers exactly uh, what research and what voices they enacted with and what perspective they're trying to sell you. You know, always, always be cautious. Always beware. So today's major subject matter is one that we, I just can't believe we didn't get around to discussing this. It literally is the greatest movie never made. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't even say combo movie. I would say the greatest movie never made. And that is James Cameron's Spider-Man. James Cameron's Spider-Man. I've spoken about it a couple times in this on this podcast because it actually affected me personally. James Cameron's Spider-Man uh, found itself in in my sphere. I found myself in in its sphere is more like it. I found myself in the sphere of the James Cameron Spider-Man uh uh you know universe trajectory twice twice it it it, it and, and i benefited from it i absolutely 100 benefited from it i and, and and today we're going to discuss a little bit about it but we're gonna so many of you and, and and this is the thing so many of you only know james cameron from the avatar movies if you're like my kids 
you know, and, and God bless them. I love my, my, my kids. They're, they're, I, I, you know, tried to expose them to all manner of variety of entertainment, art, uh, books, literature, movies. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they absorb quite a lot during at their young age, both their parents kind of in the arts, obsessed with the arts. So, so they, they got a lot, but even then, you know, my oldest son, 22 years old, he came back uh, this fall. We were going to a game together. He flew back for the weekend. And in the dead time that was that Saturday, he's like, Dad, hey, let's watch Avatar. Dad, I don't know if you know. These are exact words. I don't know if you know, Dad. But this movie has been reevaluated. You know, was it, was it really any good? And I, you know, suddenly the steam came out of my ears and my nose. And I said, what are you talking about? Luke Liefeld. I took you and your brother to see Avatar in 2009, and you saw it multiple times. You sat through a three-hour movie, completely engrossed, completely transfixed, and you would run outside of the theater afterwards as battling as if you were part of the Navi. So he's like, well, come on, Dad, that was nine. I'm like, yeah, I'm aware, but but you loved it. Well, you know, people are, are you know, I don't know if you've, you've heard, and, and that, and that in, entire, I don't know if you've heard, is loaded. Because that tells me he's called several different Twitter accounts, social media accounts that were, were in fact, reevaluating Avatar. And I'm, I'm sure we're all aware of the significant, because it's out there, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's historically logged in that people uh, were, were rooting for James Cameron to fail, thought Avatar was an anomaly. And, and how many articles did we read? that said Avatar was never really a true hit and it had no, wait for it, historical imprint, okay? No historical imprint. No pop culture, you know, footprint. It didn't leave anything behind. There isn't shelves and shelves of Avatar action figures for the last 13 years, whatever. So, of course, then he comes out with a sequel and he blows everybody away and, I mean, literally just crushes everything in its path. Still, because he makes experiences now. These movies he loves his cutting-edge technology. He loves to take us on immersive rides. But the James that's the James Cameron of now, and he realizes how high he is reaching, and he knows what he needs to achieve this continued gift that he's given, which is the budgets and, and the reach with which to, to touch you, and he wants to keep you in, in, his, you know, in his own trajectory so that he can get those the money to finance the talent, to finance the technology, to hire the talent, and to give you the experiences. I, I, I think his movies have become even more immersive, and they're almost like rides or experiences. But he understands the economics. He understands what it takes to get people out of their houses, off their couches, and in front of the you know, cinema again, go actually to a movie house. But the James Cameron that we grew up with, and I've touched on it in an earlier podcast. I don't know which one, but... My James Cameron experience started in 1984 at the Biltmore Hotel, where there was a monthly comic book convention. People in the Southern California uh, area know that every month, and then then later on, as the 80s went on, it went to every other month. And then the 90s, I think it went back to every month, the, the, the Biltmore, the LA Comic Convention. And they'd have one guest every month. Sometimes it was a writer, sometimes it was an artist. The poster for this was the poster for Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger on it. And we had seen, you know, Arnold and Conan, but what, what's this kind of, he's got these glasses and is he a robot? Well, the writer-director, James Cameron, was going to give us a presentation. And we went into the ballroom 
and we he he there there was not a lot of people. I would say seventy people in a, in a ballroom that could have fit three hundred. And James Cameron, young James Cameron, waved us all up to the stage to get as close as possible. And he had he had brought the actual. Uh, uh, t- Terminator exoskeleton, you know, at the end that, that is crawling after uh, the exposed, no skin, just the, the 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 robotic frame that we see crawl after, you know, Linda Hamilton, and uh, he had it, you know, he had a remote control and he had it move in front of us, and he asked all of us to get as close to the stage as possible because he wanted to, you know, show this was the prop, this was the actual, uh, you know. Terminator that he shot in the movie. And so he was wowing all of us. He, he, he was a great showman. And he knew that word of mouth was everything. And that even though Conan had done well, he needed, you know, he needed everybody to get excited about the Terminator. And so he came to show us footage prior to the Terminator being released, trying to get that last minute word of mouth. And he was he answered everybody's questions. He was so affable. He was so entertaining. He, but there was also a, a very distinct, you know, plea to support this movie, support this movie. Well, then he goes on. Obviously, Terminator's a big hit. He's then hired to do the sequel to Alien, which I don't think anybody saw coming. Nobody in their right mind believed anybody could step, step up to the plate and, and, and hit one out of the park as as efficiently, as convincingly, as overwhelmingly as he did in a follow-up to a classic. The Ridley Scott Alien film is like this standalone, amazing sci-fi thriller that, that, that scared a generation. It operated more as a horror film. He turned Aliens into the most kick-ass sci-fi action film. I mean, with those Marines, Bill Paxton, um, just, oh my gosh. Just incredible, incredible uh, scope and scale was awarded to him. He then follows it up with the abyss, and then we we hear, here comes T two. And if you were alive in 1991, and those trailers, you think you got excited about trailers now? You think you get excited about a Marvel trailer or about a superhero trailer? T two with the T one thousand and the liquid metal—that's state of the art, and in, in case you're wondering, you know, I'm 22 at that time. And teenagers, youthful 20 people, college-age people. Again, I've told you guys before, I had the I had the good pleasure because I had the comic book job that, and there were no assigned seatings, that I would get the tickets and I would go to the theater with my lawn chair on a summer afternoon, as was necessary for T- Terminator, uh, for T2. And I would... Um, camp out so that all my friends, and when I mean all my friends, the other 12, the six guys, the six girls who are all showing up and we'd all be able to have great seats right in the center of the orange Cynodome. And you guys who grew up in, in Southern California, the Cynodome is now a bunch of condos, but the orange Cynodome was the spot to see movies for about 20 years of my young life. And James Cameron's, uh, I saw James Cameron's Abyss there. I saw the original Terminator, T2, Aliens, True Lies. James Cameron was a uh, just an incredible auteur. The way that he lit movies, the way that he shot movies, his cinematography, his camera work, beyond the performances, the way that he cropped and presented his movies was a a it, it was a very aggressive, compelling, suspenseful style 
of telling movies. I'd even say intense. I'd use intense. But he also could weave some fun in, which levied the intense nature. I mean, look at T- T2. T2 is an absolute intense movie, but there are moments of levity dropped in with certain humor throughout. But James Cameron, uh, when, when T, there, there was a lot riding on T2. It was a very expensive movie to what was a very small movie. The original Terminator, again, was very low budget. And, and again, so much so he's going to local comic book shows and inviting people as my, such as myself, such as my 15-year-old self, to come up to the stage to observe what he is sharing with us. Um, depending on the month, it was 15 or 16, but you know, you get the picture. It was exciting. I went to the comic convention to really just get comic books, but when they said on the overhead, we could go in the ballroom and this director was going to be selling his movie, I, I wandered in there. And I was compelled the whole time. And when he told us all to go up to the stage so that we could see like the, I mean, honestly, that exoskeleton is probably three and a half feet tall. It was it's really impressive. And he had it move robotically. And if you met James Cameron and you talked to him, he'd say he did that. I talked to him about this at the premiere of True Lies. I reminded him of it. He's like, yep, those were the days. Those were the days, he said to me. Many of the uh, biggest of the sci-fi movies at the time and certainly Terminator 2 was, was, was a juggernaut, the biggest of all of them. They were powered by a production company called Carolco Pictures. Carolco Pictures is going to play heavily into this James Cameron Spider-Man story. Carolco Pictures was headed by Mario Casar and Andrew Vajna. Okay? Now, again, kids of the 80s, kids of the 90s, we saw that Carolco logo. Now, if you're like, Hey man, I have no idea what Caracol is. That's okay. That's what I'm here for. That's why you're listening to Rob's predictions. When you saw that Caracol, C-A-R-O-L-C-O pictures logo, it was a nice kind of steel C, uh, multiple like outlines of, of, of the letter C and Caracol pictures. When you saw that in front of a movie in the late 80s, early 90s, that meant you were about to see a badass movie. That was a brand like Marvel is now. That was a brand, you know, like legendary pictures in the early 2000s. If you saw legendary pictures in front of a movie and legendary pictures gave you the hangover, it gave you the the Batman trilogy, it gave you, you know, uh, the Godzilla movie, it gave you uh, the the 300 films, and it gave you Inception, okay? Christopher Nolan made so many of his movies with legendary, so you saw legendary, whoa! Legendary meant something. Carolco was was the legendary of its day, was the marvel of its day. That logo was played in front of the Rambo franchise. And you, you, you haven't lived until you've glossed over your eyes like my wife did when we were having food the other night. And I told her about the jump from First Blood to Rambo First Blood Part 2. Because First Blood took everybody by surprise. At my high school, my sophomore year, all, the, all anyone was buzzing the, 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 the weekend after First Blood was released was, have you seen the new Stallone? Have you seen First Blood? Oh my gosh, Stallone, Stallone. Again, it's not called Rambo. It's called First Blood. Now they may have gone back and to videotape, I mean, to, to, to package the, 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 the videos and the DVDs and the, and the streaming library. They may now call it Rambo First Blood, you know, like they do the Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark when that movie was only just called Raiders of the Lost Ark for the longest time. Carolco Pictures played in front of all of the Rambo movies, and they increasingly got bigger in budget and bigger in success. Carolco Pictures' logo is in front of T2. They they financed and produced and made T2 Judgment Day. They made Basic Instinct, the seminal 
movie of Sharon Stone's career, a great thriller, a huge Paul Verhoeven movie. Well, they would not, you know, get out of the Paul Verhoeven business because they would stick with him as he made Total Recall, another Schwarzenegger film as well, a giant sci-fi futuristic masterpiece. Yes, masterpiece. They would return with Stallone, with Cliffhanger. They made Stargate. Now they eventually collapsed under their own rate, uh, under their own weight. Ironically, did you know that Caracol Pictures filed for bankruptcy the same year Marvel, the Marvel entity, Marvel Entertainment filed for bankruptcy, both filed for bankruptcy in 1996. Caracol Pictures was a a participant in trying to get Spider-Man. Why am I spending so much time on Caracol Pictures? Because I want you to know that when Caracol puts an ad out in the Hollywood trades, in uh, when they put an ad out in the Hollywood trades in uh, in the nineties, that that meant something. That was a big deal because again, something you also have to remember that because you're sitting there, you're like, well, we're talking about this. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about we're talking about James Cameron Spider Man here, but think about how long Spider Man had been around, and it still hadn't had a movie. By 1995, 96, 97, 98. Okay, obviously we don't get it till till Sam Raimi and Columbia Pictures and Sony they give us that the, their their Spider Man movie in, in summer of 2002. But it was a long time getting there. Now were people trying to get Spider Man made? They were, but again, comic book movies were there was a trepidation about them. So if you wonder why the why Disney wasn't trying to give you at the time secure the rights or Paramount or Fox or Sony. Remember, when Hollywood wants to make something and they think there's heat and they can get it made, they'll do it. Let me give you a name, Tom Clancy. Let me give you another one, uh, uh, Stephen King. Uh, you know, let me give you another one, James Grisham, John Grisham, John Grisham, John Grisham, Tom Clancy, Stephen King. When these authors' books were blowing up, Hollywood started buying them up. The John Grisham legal thrillers were like, they suddenly came at us as rapid fire as you could possibly imagine. Almost all of them were lawyer films, but the John Grisham like filmography happened because Hollywood smelled money. Hollywood smelled money. Oh baby, 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 man, John Grisham, that guy, that guy's. Oh man, that 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 guy's. Uh, that that guy's. Uh, you know. That guy's stuff makes money. Well, boom, you know, we're there. And whether it was, you know, the client or whether it was the Pelican brief or whether, or whether it was a time to kill the firm, they were all over it. They made John Grisham because suddenly, oh, John Grisham means something to the audience. Well, Spider-Man meant something to an entire generation, but they weren't convinced. They were not convinced that comic book movies could be made. So they didn't pursue Spider-Man in the same way that they, you know, pursued Tom Clancy. And I mean, you you had huge Sean Connery in Tom Clancy movies, Harrison Ford in Tom Clancy movies. Again, think about Hollywood during this time. If they saw something that they thought could make the money, they would pursue it and they would make it and they would turn it around. They would put big movie stars in them. Matt Damon is in a John Grisham movie. Okay. Tom Cruise, uh, 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 Julia Roberts, Denzel Washington, Matthew McConaughey, Sandra Bullock, Sam Jackson, the biggest names in Hollywood being launched on the back of an author who had, you know, a generation's ear, a generation's eyes. But in the meantime, 
comic book movies were struggling because studios didn't believe that you would go see them. They didn't believe that we would support them. And, uh, and, and, and in the background of all that, Carol Cole Pictures had purchased the film rights from a man named Menahem Golan. Now, Menahem Golan had his own production company and he had made a bunch. His movies didn't have the same importance as Carol Cole. They didn't have the same sheen. They didn't look expensive. They didn't have that. I mean, think of all the movies I just told you. The Paul, I mean, you've got Paul Verhoeven on two of those movies. You got James Cameron. Rennie Harlan was a big time uh, director after his outing with Die Hard 2. Because again, nobody thought he did with Die Hard what James Cameron did with Aliens. He followed, he followed up a movie. He was not the, you know, he wasn't the original director. And yet he's following up a giant franchise with a movie that, that nobody thought would work as well as it did and became another giant box office hit. And uh, the thing is, um, Carol Go was very much trying to, uh, was very much trying to deliver to Cameron Spider-Man. Um, the, the gentleman known as Menahem Golan had a 21st century, his, his, his company was called 21st uh, Century, and he co-owned the Canon Group. And he produced all manner of, of films that, that you would maybe, given, given your, um, your age group, be familiar with Delta Force, Runaway Terrain, Death Wish. He is, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he's the producer and the company behind Master of the Universe, okay? So, so he had hoped to get the rights to Spider-Man. And uh, he had worked alongside Stan Lee again because, you know, he, he got movies made. He, he showed up with money. He even was behind one of the Superman movies. And, uh, but he struggled and struggled to get Spider-Man uh, to film. And the James Cameron part of this is when he uh, had pacted with Caracol Pictures uh, to, to deliver the Spider-Man movie. So Caracol, and, and, and again, I, I've just got to keep, for, for, for some of you who I realize you're like, I haven't heard any of this stuff. I'm aware. That's why I'm trying to give you like how important a Caracol picture was. Uh, you know, these guys, uh, the, the, these, these two gentlemen, uh, Kassar and Vajda, they, they in the 90s, man, they were making some big movies and they made big budgets. Total Recall, Terminator, the Rambo movies. Those movies got key summer release dates. Big, the Rambo movies kicked off summer. T2 was the biggest movie of 1991. Okay, it was, it was the premiere, the premiere film. Big filmmakers, big budgets. Now, uh, again, they, they, they buckled from their own weight, but they pacted with Menahem Golan and his 21st century, his canon from 21st century and canon. They pacted with him to bring Spider-Man to James Cameron because he wanted it. He wanted to make Spider-Man. He's been open about it. There's, there's artwork of, of James Spider-Man. There, there's, there's illustrations that he made. Now, Jim, Jim can draw. He, he can he can illustrate. That's why he's so so great in, in telling us stories. He can see them on paper before he puts them on film. He can storyboard his own stuff. So they were 
targeting Spider-Man as a $50 million budget film, a $50 million budget film, which I'm not sure would have been enough to cover with all that they envisioned. But when Carolco announces in Daily Variety that we have secured the rights to Spider-Man, that we have Spider-Man by James Cameron, we have secured the rights, that was a big deal. Now, I got the trades every day. I live in Southern California. That's where people made big announcements. When, for instance, when Titanic beat the record for E.T., when Titanic beat the record for Star Wars, Spielberg and George Lucas took giant ads out, full-page ads, sometimes with accompanied illustrations that they commissioned in advance, knowing that their records were going to get broke in the Hollywood trades. I remember running around Extreme Studios showing it was Titanic, like crashing through the Star Wars universe as congratulates, you know, uh, George Lucas congratulates Terminator on passing the worldwide gross of Star Wars. That came in a Hollywood trade. Those announcements were meant to put everyone on notice. We are doing something important. We are doing something special and you need to pay attention. So, uh, you know, Daily Variety carried the announcement that Carol Co. has got a screenplay from James Cameron. Now, there were other names on the, on, on the screenplay as well, but none is important, as recognizable, as commercial as James Cameron. Now, Cameron is making True Lies at this time. And True Lies, again, is, is, it's been lost in the filmography. It's such an excellent movie. It is basically James Cameron at the time said, I wanted to make a James Bond film, but I didn't have access to James Bond. So he put Schwarzenegger in it. It's a great movie. It's one of his best. It's one of his top films, pure, straight, brilliant action film. It's one of my favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger performances of all time. And Cameron, again, stages it with the same amazing, uh, I've used the word intense, but it's gorgeous movie to look at. Everyone's lit beautifully. Again, me and my crew, my peers, we viewed Cameron the way that he'd light things with blue lighting. I was making cable and X-Force and trying to emulate what I was seeing from James Cameron movies. Now, I would eventually tell him this at the the True Lies premiere. I went to the real True Lies premiere, but Planet Hollywood had just opened in Orange County across from South Coast Plaza, the biggest mall in Orange County, the biggest, most extravagant, still to this day, kind of what they call the richest because it's right near, near Newport Beach. Giant piece of property, South Coast Plaza, huge Planet Hollywood adjacent. There was a movie theater adjacent to that. They staged an Orange County screening. Everybody from Extreme Studios got to go. I got 65 tickets and we all went to the movie house and we all saw the, it was about a week before True Lies came out, James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger were there. They introduced the movie. Afterwards, there was an after party at the Planet Hollywood, which again, they're trying to put that on the map. And uh, my, my, myself, my wife, a couple people from Extreme, my sister were in attendance. I bought my Conan sword from Arnold Schwarzenegger there. There's, I, does Rob Liefeld still have the Conan? Yes, I do. It's hanging. Arnold signed it in front of me. It was put up for auction. I was the high bidder. He signed it in front of me. He presented it to me. Um, that night, as we were having, getting dinner at the, at the you know, the, the, the food tables, the, the extravagant buffet, I came alongside James Cameron. I told him about my experience. When I introduced himself, I've, I've, I've covered this before. He said, I, I know who you are. And I've, <laughs> I've said it before. It was like, you ripped off Terminator to make cable. And I'm like, guilt. He didn't say that. But that was the I, 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 I know who you are. I, I'm a, and then he said, hi. And I'm like, 
you know, you're the greatest. I, I did my Rob Liefeld, you know, you know, complete like just diarrhea of the mouth praise spill all over him, of which I'm pretty sure he 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 was entertained by uh, somewhat briefly. And I also knew, like, get out. This guy needs to get the pasta on his plate and go eat. The guy's tired. He's promoting his movie. But I just remember telling him how much I appreciated him sharing that Terminator presentation that I was there. I was in. I was. I was there at the Biltmore Hotel, and he again, like he said, those were the days. Oh, that was great. Well, asked me if I enjoyed True Lies. I said I loved it. He said thank you very much. And he's James Cameron, and I moved on. But let me tell you something. His next movie was supposed to be Spider Man. At this time, what's going on behind the scenes during this time? True Lies is wrapped. He's put it in front of the audiences. It's about to go worldwide, become a giant hit of the summer. They are trying to position Spider-Man. He has written a 47 scriptment. Now, this is the buzzy words that were going along in the, in the, um, in the 90s. It was a faster way to track your, your, your project. You didn't have to write a full script. Full script could be 110 pages. What's better? Write a 47-page scriptment. So then if they like the scriptment, you can build that out, add the extra pages and make it a full script. He had detailed an, 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 a, a 47-page scriptment. The villains were Electro and Sandman. He had changed the names of Electro. He had changed uh, some of the origins of Sandman. But bottom line, it was a very James Cameron-esque. And when you read it and you read about it, and he had, uh, there were actually radioactive flies instead of spiders, but the spider caught the fly in its web as it was buzzing around in the lab when Peter and his students were going through and the spider eats the fly. And, and now that, now the spider has the radioactive uh, components and it bites Spider-Man, bites Peter Parker, makes him Spider-Man. He starts, you know, uh, expanding his powers. He, it, the, the, there, there's parts of this and they say some of it was carried over to the Raimi film. And I believe it, the fever that he gets after getting bitten, the transformation, the wonderment, that's all in the, in the James Cameron scriptment. James Cameron's Spider-Man then goes out, fights crime. Eventually he saves Mary Jane Parker from being mugged. And this is a girl that he idolizes in high school and she's with Flash Thompson. And we, we've met her previously in the movie. She's Flash's girl and spider, you know, Peter Parker is this nebishy, you know, the Peter Parker that we've all come to know and love since his inception. He's, he's, you know, watching from afar, you know, dreaming that MJ could be his girl. And now he's just saved her life, except, you know, he's got a mask on. He's Spider-Man. She can't, she can't possibly know who he is. And there, the big controversy in this scriptman is that he takes her to the top of the Brooklyn Bridge and they, and they make love. He pulls his mask up. He makes out with her. She's turned on. They have sex on the top of the Brooklyn Bridge. Yes, that's in James Cameron's scriptment. Now, do, do I think that he would be showing us all of this? No, I'm sure the camera would be pulling away off the top of the bridge as it got more intimate. James Cameron was a classy guy. He knew how to make things. He, he knew how to do more with suggestions than with full reveals. And he is the master of the suggestion. Now, when it came to violence, he's going to put your knuckles, he's going to put those knuckles in your face and, 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 and show the, the, the brunt force of that punch. But for this, I see how James Cameron would have filmed it. And of course, then it's got the guy who is um, uh, Electro and, and teaming with the guy who's Sandman. And of course, they, they try to recruit Spider-Man because they see what a threat he is and they try and recruit him to their side. And of course, there's electrical storms, there's blackouts, there's magnetic, magnetic event, uh, uh, events. and uh, you know, the, uh, 
the, the finale obviously has a giant face off and uh and and at the end he Peter Parker reveals to MJ that 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 you know who he is. But the bottom line is Cameron had agreed to make Spider-Man based on a template. Uh now now I'm telling you right now as somebody who's done movie deals and I've got a couple of them that I just closed. So I'm, I'm this is fresh. They always look at your template. It's an easy way for these guys to say, well, this is what life gets. He gets this, 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 and here's the language. And this is what we're comfortable with. And they just, we're just going to, we're just going to scratch this. You know, we're going to put, we're going to take profit out and we're going to put the new title in. And that's kind of the, the, the deal we're, we're, we're following. Well, Carolco and the lawyers just simply replicated his Terminator 2 contract and put Spider-Man on it. Well, by doing that, it gave him a clause. And, uh, so he had a he had a right. He he basically was implemented into the rights of this, which is why he's when everyone sues each other at the end of the nineties to try and get the rights of Spider Man, which is, you know, what happens in the end of the nineties is you got all these companies in bankruptcy, you got Carolco in pa- bankruptcy, you got Marvel in bankruptcy, you got everybody and their mother who thought they had a tie to somebody in the movie m- making cr- uh claims on this, including MGM. Uh and they're all suing each other. Carolco suing MGM suing Columbia, Columbia suing Carolco, you know. <clears throat> Cameron had a contractual piece of this film. So, you know, at the end of the day, he had a say because he was the biggest, he was the biggest part of it. Again, James Cameron didn't get big because of Avatar. James Cameron got big because of the Terminator movies and because of Aliens, because of True Lies, and obviously then the Titanic. But this is all before the Titanic. And clearly, Spider-Man is is experiencing so many problems that James Cameron moves on to make the Titanic because the the, the Spider-Man rights are are tangled, and everyone is uh, you know everybody is 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 disputing, and are they going forward? You know what's Marvel comfortable with prior to you know their bankruptcy? Because again, everyone was hesitating. These movies worried people, you know. The Batman movies were really the only movies anybody felt good about. And then Batman and Robin happened and nobody wanted to touch a comic book movie until X-Men proved that it, you could make a big budget uh, comic book adaptation. And again, you can draw a straight line from Batman to Robin to X-Men. Do not come at me with Blade. I've covered that. That was a vampire horror thriller that did not get a single superhero movie greenlit. And there are people on record, Hugh Jackman himself, who will, who will tell you that you know, in the time that he was circling the X-Men and being sought as the replacement for Wolverine, uh, when the original actor who was tied to uh, Mission Impossible 2 could not break free, um, people were nervous about superhero films. Blade did not, on, on any level, make people comfortable making superhero films. The success of something is when it completely, uh, uh, its success, you know, creates other success in its wake. So Spider-Man was not, as I said earlier, in the same way that a Grisham novel or a Clancy novel or a Stephen King novel were pursued and made. Spider-Man and the comic book stuff, they just couldn't get off the schneid here, even with James Cameron involved. So around 1993, which is where uh, Menahem Golan decides that he is going to instigate legal action he had brought carolco pictures on board to get his spider-man made because his production company 21st century canon films his production companies 
were involved in getting Spider-Man off the ground, dealing with Marvel way back, way back when. Well, he went to Carolco trying to, and again, going, hey, man, like, let's, let's do business together. You guys have the big names. You have the big credit. Let me attach myself to you, cut you in on the action, give you, you know, uh, uh, give you point on this, give you point on this project. And I'll just be a great beneficiary because Carolco is going to make this movie. Well, they had a dispute. They had a dispute. So he instigates legal action against Carolco in 1993. And he tries to get his um, contract with them, you know, uh, restructured. James Cameron is like, well, I've got a contract on this as well. I have participation. I have, I have like, I can decide credits. I can decide services under this contract. So this is just all sorts of lawyers playing, uh, playing, playing who's got the rights, who's got the rights. And at that point, everybody backs off. And I'm sure it was like, this is going to take a while to untangle. This is going to take a while to untangle. Could be years. I believe James Cameron did that scriptment trying to go like, guys, you have to work things out. Look what I've brought you. I have brought you this brilliant film, which will bring Spider-Man to life. I'm James freaking Cameron. Everything I touch turns to gold. Everything James Cameron touches turns to gold. And that went so it, that, that predates the Avatar films. And yet he couldn't move this in the direction of getting it untangled. So having it untangled, he moves on to Titanic. He never revisits Spider-Man again. And like I said, <clears throat> 21st century films, Canon, Carolco, Marvel, they are all headed towards bankruptcy. In 1996, Carolco, 21st century, and Marvel all file for bankruptcy. Now, it just so happens at that point, obviously, Spider-Man is up in the air. I remember the trades reporting on the judge because everyone brought their claims before a judge in the late 90s. And all you need to know is MGM, Carolco, Columbia, Cameron, the judge came out and said, you know what? I'm just giving the rights back to Marvel. Sony met them. The story goes, Sony met them outside the courthouse, presented them with a check for $20 million up front. They were coming out of bankruptcy. That That is like a $200 million check now. 1998, 1999, $20 million. It, it was 20 times better than what they were getting for Fox on their movie deals. And so, and so Marvel signs immediately on the bottom line. Columbia came through. Those Spider-Man films worked. They helped get you to the MCU of today. How did the Spider-Man films, James Cameron's Spider-Man films affect me? How did I get involved? Tom Cruise. I've done an entire podcast on my Hollywood um, escapades. There was a movie I had called The Mark, but that The Mark only comes to be because I am called. I have already done a deal on a movie called Dooms 4 with Steven Spielberg at the biggest agency in the land. CAA was the and remains the biggest Hollywood agency with the biggest names, biggest representation of directors, and they know it. And they love it. And that's why they all, they're always trying to increase the people that they represent, the talent that they have. I was called, based on my positive experience with Steven Spielberg, they wanted to put me in a room with Tom Cruise. I was given 15 hours notice. I was called at 6 p.m. the night before to be in the lobby at 9 a.m. the next day. Do you have a comic book that you could present to Tom Cruise? And then they paused and they said, he was just told by James Cameron that he was too old to be considered to play his Spider-Man. That is exactly the words that the agent told me. The agent told me he was just told he was too old to play. He was just told he was too old to play Spider-Man in James Cameron's movie. 
do you have something for him? That was my doorway into walking into a relationship with Tom Cruise. I was up all night. I literally stared at the ceiling fan going round and round and round and stared all night trying to think of how could I interest Tom Cruise in this, uh, <clears throat> in, 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 in being a part of, the, of, of this movie because he had just been turned down by the greatest filmmaker, you know, of, the, of, of his age. Because again, I'm telling you right now, let me assure you, Terminator 2 was, it, it was a movie that everyone aspired to. The technology, the, the, the killer action sequences, the, I mean, Linda Hamilton's performance, uh, Robert Patrick as the T-1000, Eddie Furlong, obviously Arnold in, at his most impo- imposing. It was the movie that all other filmmakers had wished they made. It was that groundbreaking. It was R-rated. It was violent. It was adult. It turned audiences on. Cameron knew exactly what he had. He was now making True Lies, but dis- <clears throat> he was discussing Spider-Man. Tom Cruise had a meeting with him. You're too old. Boom. That's what I was told. That is what I was told by my agent. That is what propelled me to have a meeting with Tom Cruise the next morning. And I came up with this. Instead of getting bit by a spider, he's kind of, you know, a, a mark is put on him that gives him mythological, biblical level, godlike powers. And how would he deal with it? Because he didn't want it in the first place. And everyone knows he shouldn't have it. And so then he becomes hunted. And he has to learn on the fly. And that is the story of the mark. And he bought it in the room. I sat knee to knee with him. He was as charismatic and as compelling as anyone I have ever sat in the presence of. This would begin a three-year process. We hired William Wisher. Look him up. Bill Wisher. William Wisher. What did he write? T2. He wrote T2 with James Cameron. Did, did James Cameron have a huge after effect? Did he have a huge echo in the movie business? Yes, he did. Because who is now trying to, you know, get some of that Cameron juice, we hire William Wisher to write the screenplay based on my pitch for the mark. If I'm telling you, the Cameron effect was real. James Cameron was a big deal. The, na- the fact that his name was attached to Spider-Man, the fact that he put that 47-page scriptment with all these kind of cool adult elements and superpowers and Electro and Sandman and, and the, the, the sexy relationship between um, Peter Parker and MJ. Yeah, I said sexy. I said it in a funny way. It's, it's the, the word sexy is funny. Let's all say it three times. Sexy, sexy, sexy. So there, we've taken <clears throat> the, the, the creepy part about saying sexy in a podcast away. Okay. So James Cameron, I think that script was meant to like push it into the green light. Come on guys, get out of my way. Give me what I want. You know, when I met, Car- I, I know this is the name drop episode, but when I met Quentin Tarantino, uh, in the parking lot of a restaurant called The Farm in LA. And we walked into the restaurant together and he was polite. And, and yes, fan, he was a fan. I, I, I had comics in the trunk. I gave them to him. If you don't think Quentin Tarantino is a comic book fan, you're out to lunch. This is in between Kill Bill 1 and 2 being released. They were already made. I said, Quentin, would you ever consider making a comic book film? He said, Rob, I'd have to own it myself. I can't deal with fandom. I can't deal with, they, they have these ideas. They have these pre, you know, prefixed notions that they bring to everything. I don't want to deal with that. It'd have to be my own thing. It'd have to be my own thing, man. <clears throat> I said, I respect that. I, I absolutely respect that. That's cool. And again, somebody I'm completely transfixed by. But I think James Cameron was like, what is this? Like, I created the Terminator. I created True Eyes. I created all these, you know, the only thing I jumped on board that I didn't, wasn't a part of was, alien, was, was Aliens. 
But I think whether it was Tarantino thinking of prefixed notions of fans or James Cameron going, the rights to this are so tangled up and effed up. Good God almighty. I'm just going to go make a, you know, my Titanic movie, which is a piece of history which no one owns and no one can stop me. Sometimes the rights can get so tangled, it can chase huge talent off, and it chased James Cameron, James Cameron off of this. So I get into business with Tom Cruise. Here's the irony of this, because this is going to swing back around again. Well, William Wisher does drafts, the, the writer of T2 does drafts of my pitch that I give to Tom that he buys in the room, and the only reason I'm with him is because he can't be Spider-Man in James Cameron's vision, according to the agents that you know brought me in, in front of him. Three years later, when this is not going as well as planned and the mark has become something different in some of those Hollywood stories where, where you see where they buy it based on one thing and then it's changed into something, you're like, what? Uh, I had the opportunity to take back the rights to the mark, which I did, and I wrote a screenplay. I wanted to get my vision down on paper. Well, now I was told, literally by the same agency, CAA calls me and says, Rob, we want you to meet with Will Smith. He is trying to convince... Uh, Sony, who, you know, is dancing and Carolco and all the people who are dancing with Spider-Man still. This is the summer of 1996. He's trying to convince them that he wants to play Spider-Man. Now, Will Smith was coming off Bad Boys, Independence Day, and Men in Black. And when I tell you that he was the most in demand, the hottest movie star on planet Earth, I believe you me. I go, I can't believe this happened to me twice in one lifetime. Will Smith, what do you do when you have all that success, when you're the biggest movie star in the world, when you have back-to-back-to-back years with giant hits and they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you're becoming more and more well-known and more and more, you go, you know what? I'm going to move the needle. I'm going to tell everybody I should be Peter Parker. I should be Spider-Man. I'm going to just completely rewrite the way people see this character. Now, this is years before Miles Morales, by the way. But I was like, wow, big, you know, I, I had nothing but respect. For, for Will, for trying to do that. But they said, yeah, Spider-Man can't happen, but he wants to play a spider he, he really wanted to play Spider-Man. He's really pleading with the people who are making Spider-Man, which at the time is Carolco, the 21st century company, all these companies who are trying to still untangle now in bankruptcy. But Will has told them he wants to be Spider-Man. Well, that's not happening anytime soon. So I am once again engaged with the mark. Will reads the script, puts his okay on it. Let me tell you how big Will Smith was. There's a longer version of this in an earlier podcast, but Halloween weekend, 1996. I am at Steven Spielberg's house, his house. I am at the president of Disney's house. We are doing summer. I am at the president of Fox's house. I am in the president of Sony's house. All we are doing is going to everyone's house because Will Smith is the ambassador. I am walking in with him. We are sitting, we are pitching the mark and he got a bidding war going. And yes, the inability to give Will Smith the role of Spider-Man got me a million-dollar screenplay. Yes, I was paid a million dollars for a screenplay called The Mark. And of course, then that runs into all the same development problems. Uh, it's like, meet the new boss, he's same as the old boss. But uh, both of these things were set in motion by two of the biggest actors of all time's desire to play Spider-Man. This is what is told to me on the film. I go, I can meet this challenge. I will rise to this occasion. You've seen art put out for James Cameron's Spider-Man that has Leonardo DiCaprio. I've seen those online too. I I don't believe now, while DiCaprio was genuinely um, a a huge buzzy name at the time based on what's eating Gilbert Grape, based on Romeo and Juliet. Do I believe he could have been James Cameron's Spider-Man? I do. 
Uh, I think all that other stuff is speculation, except for the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger was 100% absolutely supposed to be Doc Ock. I believe that. I believe that 100% with all my heart because of the relationship that Cameron and, and, and Schwarzenegger continue to have. I mean, you've read a recent interview. Uh, looking back on the most recent Tim Miller-directed Terminator movie, James Cameron said the reason Arnold's in that, and he says, I told Tim, I can't not have Tim have Arnold in this movie. This quote that I he was doing press for Avatar two months ago, and James Cameron is on record saying, I, I knew that if I didn't put Arnold in this movie, he'd call me up and he'd give me a hard time and it would affect our friendship. And I couldn't have that. So I need him in this movie as well. Arnold and Cameron have have some of their biggest successes tied together. So do I believe that at the apex of their relationship following two Terminator movies and True Lies, that he would have also included him as Otto Octavius? I mean, can't we all hear, I'm Otto Octavius. I mean, come on. Who's not going to hear Schwarzenegger? Listen, everyone, I'm Otto Octavius. Peter Parker, get out of my way. Okay, so 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 that was happening. I guarantee that that is. I I'm, <laughs> I'm giving a guarantee as a comic book historian, no less. <laughs> uh, pun intended. Okay, I believe that was happening. One hundred percent. I believe that was going to go down. Uh, but there you go. The greatest movie never made is James Cameron's Spider Man. This guy that only delivers hits, monster hits. I can't get James Bond. I'll make my own James Bond. Oh, it'll become number one. It'll become a giant mega um, hundred million plus you know success uh terminator huge you know meant to be just a sci-fi low budget movie becomes an epic for its time t2 biggest movie of all time at the time the abyss i'm going to take actors that you're not terribly familiar with at the time and i put them in a big giant sci-fi movie based at the bottom of the ocean um the titanic everybody bet against that guy we all know how it ends was the thing you heard all in all over and over in 1996-97 we all know how it ends why is anybody going to see this movie we all know how it ends that was his challenge he rose up he met it he made the biggest movie of all time those ads from lucas and spielberg congratulating james cameron on toppling them on their on on the on the the titanic success then we're not going to go see movies about blue people yes you will yes you did yes you have (laughs) james cameron's spider-man would have been a monster hit that scriptment is worth it if you can hunt it down and read it. It's cool. Uh, Caracal Pictures was the legendary films, the Marvel productions of its day. It doesn't matter that behind the scenes, because we didn't know it, that they were bleeding money, that they weren't making money because, you know, they were spending so much money. And again, you guys understand, you know, once you start spending the money and Arnold goes, I need the private jet to go to, I need the private jet to go to Monaco, uh, you know, Monaco uh, to, to, to promote, you know, my, 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 my movie. And I need to stay, sp- spend a week there and you're paying for it. Get Arnold the Jet. Get Arnold the Jet. Read, I read a detailed kind of breakdown of a giant stars um, who I won't say, but but the, the LA Times had done a th- thing at the end of the 90s about why these, you know, what these stars spend their money on. And it, and it, and it, and it, and it detailed uh, what the star, how many houses the star had, how many chefs, how many bodyguards, how many for a lack of better term servants and this one star had purchased a jet and like this they said when you purchase a jet you also purchase the pilots to fly the jet the personnel uh to cater to you on the jet the technicians the the mechanics to to maintain the jet and the jet fuel so costs of being a star or courting a star can get out of hand so we didn't know 
until, you know, Cutthroat Island, Caroco's big monster disaster pirate movie with Matthew Modine and Gina, Gina Davis. Uh, it was supposed to be Michael Douglas. He dropped out at the last minute. They replaced him with Matthew Modine. Big director that they had already worked with. Boom. Huge flop. That's where that they fast-tracked them out of business. But prior to that, Caroco in front of you know Terminator 2. Caroco in front of all the giant hit Rambo movies. Caroco in front of Total Recall. Caroco in front of Basic Instinct. They were the... Uh, they were the... They were fine dining as far as film was going. They were they were they were fine wine. They were uh, they were the bougie uh, big time production studio. And with their name on Spider Man and James Cameron, it was set for heights yet experienced yet achieved. But it couldn't get off the ground because everybody started yelling about the rights. I have the rights to this. I have the rights to this. You don't have to take the rights to take my name off. And the temperature of a Hollywood town. That was not convinced that going all in on this was worth it. $50 million? I don't know. I don't know. People don't like comic books. Go back. Read about the history of comic books in the 90s and how every studio was terrified. And again, I can I can tell you. I can tell you because I was there. I was there. And people would be like, ah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I know comic books. But, but, but will they make good movies? Will they make good movies? I was told that at Fox, at Paramount, at Warner Brothers, at Disney, at New Line. Everybody... Can we bring the budgets down? Can we bring the budgets way down? The one thing about those Batman movies, remember, not a lot of superpowers. Penguin was creepy. Joker was creepy. Catwoman was cool. But there weren't people blasting. Now you're like, but Rob, you know, they finally got Dr. Freeze and he blast. Yep. But the Riddler was just telling jokes. And Two-Face was just looking creepy. You know, we hadn't entered the age of people flying in the air, throwing their hammers, armored suits, blasting people from on high. Um you know, somebody literally hulking out in the manner that Hulk hulked out. Special effects were not where they were now. And uh, so there was a real trepidation, and obviously Spider-Man would have put that to the test. Organic web shooters, something that you also saw in the Sony movie, was part of the James Cameron film. But the James Cameron film, again, when you hear about it, I love that the that it was radioactive flies and a spider ate the fly, consuming the radioactive radio, um activity and then getting more aggressive bit peter parker who then gets the powers they become organic i love that he saves mary jane she's turned on they they they, they their, their relationship kickstarts she's in love with the superhero not knowing that he's also the you know teenage kid that 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 you know the gawky teenage kid that that wanders the halls of the high school alongside of her uh i have no doubt that we would have loved james cameron's spider-man but that is a uh Unfortunately, uh, a movie we will not likely ever see, and yet it was worth in, in, in interacting with again because I flew into this orbit not by my own choice, but by the fact that two giant mega stars could not access this character. Will huge man? I, I really believed if anybody could have pulled it off at the time and said, "No, no, 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 no," this is what you think Peter Parker looks like. I'm Peter Parker. I'm Spider Man. Would people have lined up? They would have, but the rights were tangled, and he, and they couldn't make the path. Tom Cruise possibly uh you know uh, uh, wanting to be spider-man in the worst way told again i only know what i was told caa rob can you meet and, and trust me when caa would call me and go rob they need you on the set of the firm i said tomorrow i'm like okay well, where, where's it filming in la it's not it's in new orleans you are you your plane is leaving at 6 a.m tomorrow morning you have to be on that flight what so uh yeah 
when people want you and they want you summoned, they can, they do. And and again, once I was in the Tom Cruise orbit, I, I learned a, a tremendous amount in, in that three years. But uh, my entire meeting with him is is because the Spider-Man role was not accessible to him. So that was a fun examination of all things Hollywood, Carolco Pictures. Again, I just want you to understand there was trepidation to superhero movies that there wasn't with other things. John Grisham, Tom Clancy, as I've said, Stephen King. If Hollywood thought something could make money, they'd buy tons of it and they'd make it immediately with the very biggest of stars. But that same faith was not given to something like a Spider-Man. And and, and while they would continue to try and develop and push it forward, people were were getting upset over everyone's rights and contracts that were were, were, were wrote up er- erroneously to give maybe the writer-director more control, more credit than they wanted. And, and, and feuds over... You know, who's going to produce it? Who's going to finance it until everybody buckles under all the money that they owe on other projects and in the weirdest, again, Caracol Pictures, 21st Century, which is Menahem Golan's company and Marvel all bankrupt in the same year, which did not spell, you know, success for James Cameron's Spider-Man. I love history. I love talking about it. I love sharing it. This subject was way past its due. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think we can all agree that the Spider-Man movies that we got uh, instead later on, the Raimi films, uh, the, 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 even the Garfield films, there's stuff that I love in all of them. And, of course, the, the, the most recent films. So, so Spider-Man luckily eventually found his way uh, on screen. And we got no less than three Spider-Mans in the course of, I think... You know, about 15 years, we went from Toby to Andrew to Tom. And and I'm sure there'll be more on tap, but, uh, you know, Spider-Man is now here to stay. But this was the time when he struggled, struggled to find his way, even with some of the biggest names in the history of cinema behind him. So that was quite the 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 investigation of history. I just thank you guys for coming along with me on these rides. Thanks for in, in, uh, g- going going through this stuff. I mean, literally. It has to be the greatest movie never made. It has to. So thanks for thanks for uh, go, going on that ride with me and being here each and every time. Thank you for listening and, and thank you for sharing your enthusiasm of the show as, as the show continues to reach new people from your word of mouth. I know it because people tell me. They tell me online. They tell me in person. I, I, I am so excited uh, to, to bring this show to you each and every week. At the end of each show, I share with you your reviews of observations that you, you guys go on Apple or, or, or sometimes you text me directly. I read those too. Um, wherever you leave and post reviews, I read them and we love it. We th- thank you so much. When you actually post them on the platforms like Apple, it helps increase our awareness. And again, since we're doing this show, uh, you know, each and every uh, outing for free, it, it, it is my just 100% the, 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 the most enthusiastic gift I can give. And I thank you so much for receiving it. We could, I could use your support. These, these reviews help. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Today's review is from Kriti. C-R-I-T-I. Kriti. Kriti. Gives us five stars. Thank you so much, Kriti. It says, uh, Robservations, keeping the love of comics going. It says, I will honestly say Robservations is the first and only podcast that I have ever listened to. Being around the same age as Rob Liefeld, I extremely enjoy listening to his opinions and musings of comic books and the people that made them. 
Hearing Rob talk about the same creators that I grew up idolizing brings me back to the days of standing outside the comic book store debating who was better, John Byrne or George Perez. Rob was among a few of the artists that, in my opinion, brought style and excitement back into comic books after a period of blah. Thank you for sharing your time and stories with us, and thank you for all your contributions in keeping comic books alive. Critty, man, every time somebody writes one of these, I am just so verklempt and so enthused and so humbled that you would take time to write that and share that and 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 share the feels and uh that, that you get from this and I, I i can't believe i'm the only podcast you listen to um i i just thank you thank you for sharing that and those arguments about john byrne and george perez are some of my favorite of my lifetime i revisit them in my heads all the time from convention floors to comic book stores it was the great debate. Thank you, Critty, for your very generous review. If you leave a review for observations at the end of each show, I read it to you. I read it back to you at the end of our show during this segment. Again, thank you for your support. Thank you for continuing to share your word of mouth about this show. I am all over social media. If you happen to be on Twitter, look for me. I am at Robert Liefeld. I always have to apologize that I didn't get my name Rob Liefeld, but it got squatted so fast. But I am Robert Liefeld. I have a blue check. I'm not paying for it. <laughs> It's a verification uh, that I still carry. It tells you that it's really me talking to you. I love interacting with each and every one of you in your mentions, in your um, comments. Thank you for talking with me on Twitter. Um, I, I just love sharing and, uh, and and interacting with all of you over on Twitter. At Robert Liefeld is who I am over on Twitter. Except no substitutes. On Instagram, follow me as Rob Liefeld. I got my full name. Thank you to my wife early on who said you should be on this app. It's cool. It's fun. That is my photo dump of my life, what I'm drawing, what I'm eating, what I'm doing with my family, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Uh, I, I try and keep a regular posting of things over there, so I'm trying to keep it lively. Again, I love your messages, your DMs, your comments, everything. So, Thank you so much for following me and interacting with me over on Instagram. There is an app. It's called Whatnot. The Whatnot app is where great killer comic book collectibles are found. Comic book collectibles uh such as comic books toys action figures original art that's the kind of stuff that i'm sharing with you on my account rob liefeld follow rob liefeld on whatnot in other what they call rooms digital rooms they're selling you anime they're selling you manga they're selling you Yu-Gi-Oh, pokemon um all manner of different collectible cards card games marvel cards uh they, they sell watches they sell sports gear jerseys tennis shoes all of it Follow me on Whatnot. We do shows twice a week. I am talking right at you into the camera. It's like this podcast, except slightly more nauseating. And I am looking straight into the camera, talking to you, sharing with you customized signatures, remarks, original artwork. I'd love for you to join us. So many of you over there have told me that you found the Whatnot show from me mentioning it here. So I'm going to continue to mention it here. Um, I did exclusive covers, Spider-Man covers, Deadpool covers, New Mutants covers, Brigade covers, my own characters, a profit cover that I only did for whatnot. So you can find them exclusively, exclusively uh, when you follow me, Rob Liefeld on whatnot and when I go live, which I do generally at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. If you follow me, you'll get a notification of my next show. But Wednesdays and Saturdays are kind of my, what I lurk the most. I've done other days, but anyway, check me out on whatnot. Love to see you there. Over on Facebook, I have a group. It's called Marvel. It's called, sorry. On Facebook, I have a group. It's called Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. Myself, 
or another gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, Terry Sala or I, we are the only two administrators of that group. We will click you through. We are hoping to see you. We are happy to see you. We have some lively discussions going on about there. All things um, comic book related to what I have created, what I have participated on, what I have drawn. We have art contests. Uh, people share comics and stories, interviews. It's a fun group. I hope that you join us over on Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond over on Facebook. Again, myself or Terry will be the administrators that click you through. That's how you know you've reached the right place. My art dealer of all people said, Rob, you need to mention me. Panel page art. Panel page art is who carries all my original art. You know, I'm only here talking to you at this podcast and lucky not to be just a comic book historian because I actually make comics because I draw comics. I write and draw comics. So many of my pages are represented by my art rep. Panel page art is the site that you should go to to check out Glenn and all of the art. He's got all, tons of great artists besides myself, but he's my dedicated art rep. Check him out. He, if, if I drew it, especially in the last several years, he has it. I just am so thankful uh, that you guys hang out with me in any capacity and listen to the show. Uh, I will continue to try and keep it lively and topical and entertaining. <laughs> uh, and at the end of each show, I, I tell you that your mental health, your spiritual health, your physical health, and your emotional health are important to me. Hey, I raised three kids in a pandemic. I get it. Take time out for yourself. That's always the the the, the prerequisite. Take time out. Make time for yourself on the weekends. Maybe a busy week weeknight. You need you need some time away. Grab a comic book. Grab some great food. Have some great time with your friends, with your loved ones. Go for a walk in the park. I always say lounge on the chair and read a comic book and watch a movie. But hey. Go, go for a walk. Let ideas fill your head. I'm just rooting for you to get some time for yourself to do stuff that you enjoy. What I enjoy is watching movies, streaming shows, reading comic books, graphic novels, and uh, anything that kind of gets me, gets me re, 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 re-energized, juiced back up so that I can engage properly. Uh, don't be scared to take that time. And also talk to friends. You know, again, if you're, if you're, if you're feeling it, Talk to friends, reach out. Don't, don't, don't ever, ever go through anything alone. Okay. I'm rooting for you at all times. Like I said, family man, three kids, pandemic. It really hit home. I, I saw it firsthand. Uh, and that, and I'm not sure we're out of the grind. The grind is constant, you guys. So uh, I'm right there with you and I'm rooting for you. Please come see me again. Swing back around. I'm going to be here. We will most definitely, assuredly, inevitably talk again real soon.